Lord God, in these moments of somewhat silence, we pause to notice you. And in our noticing, we realize that we carry with us the events from today and maybe even the week, the month. We may even carry with us events from years with us to this place today. And so, whether we come bearing disappointment or joy, whether we come in lament or in celebration, whether we come exhausted or energized, we've come to this place because we believe that you have something for us. And we ask that you would give us the awareness to recognize you in our midst and to receive what it is you have for us this day. And as we pause, we make this our prayer. And this is our prayer together that we ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening. My name is Chris, and I want to greet you in the strong and the powerful name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, Corinthians chapter 1, starting with verse 18. I have some friends who have Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you just raise your hand. Somebody would be glad to bring you a Bible. This can be yours as a gift, or if you just need to borrow it, that would be great. If you want a Bible in Spanish, we have those as well. If you're practicing your Spanish, or if Spanish is your first language, We want to give that to you. But I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, starting with verse 18. And I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word for us this evening out of this letter to the Corinthians. So hear the word of the Lord. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Since God and his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom, he has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say, it's all nonsense. But to those who are called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose, chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things, things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So earlier in this service, we said these words together. We said, we gather here to tell the truth. That while we were still sinners, God died in solidarity with us. And now you and I are forgiven, set free. And we are adopted into a good family. You and I are not alone. We belong to God and we belong to one another. We are God's people. We are people who are rich and satisfied. A people of peace, reconciliation, and love. About three and a half, four years ago, these were some of the first words that Pastor Mikhail and I wrote together as we were dreaming about the kind of church that we wanted to create. I would write a little bit, and then she would, and then we'd exchange notes, pass them back and forth, until we landed on the, until we landed on the creed that we all said together. Uh, we knew right from the beginning, before we knew any of you, we knew that we wanted this statement to shape our identity, that we wanted it to shape our practices. We wanted a statement like this to shape our mission. And for the last three, three and a half years, we think that it has. Last week, we said these words, we gather here to tell the truth. We don't have our lives together. And the reason that we did that is because we wanted to be a church that was confessional. It's okay to tell the truth here. This week, we, we said these words, God died in, solidar- in solidarity with us. That, friends, is our theology. And then, at the same time, we, we've said that, we wanted, uh, that Jesus has been the very best neighbor to us. And so we want to be good neighbors to one another. That's our mission. We have a confession, we have a theology, and we have a mission. So this is the second week of our series that we're calling To Tell the Truth. And I want to look at this very rich phrase, God died in solidarity with us. This statement right here, the one that you said, maybe what you had to do is you had to just skip that part. It's not something that you understand, so you had to close your mouth when it came to this place, because this statement really is loaded. Uh, For those of you who could say this statement, it feels like a statement of assurance. Those of you who carry doubt, you just had to wait on it, because a statement like this can be confusing, and it presents just a whole host of questions. In the very first days of Christianity, early in the first century, soon after the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, this was the question that everyone was discussing. They asked the question, who was Jesus of Nazareth and what did his death mean on the cross? Those who saw him on the street or those who experienced his ministry or those who witnessed his healing or those who partied with him or those he ate with or those who stood there around the cross and watched him as he died. Those he revealed himself to after, uh, after the resurrection. Those who wrote those stories down and put them in holy scripture. Uh, those who have experienced his presence in history, have all made the claim. It doesn't matter if they're Greek Orthodox or Catholic or Anglican or Methodist or Baptist or Nazarene. They made this claim about Jesus of Nazareth. They said that Jesus of Nazareth was the expected Messiah of Israel. They said together that he was the incarnate God, that he was God in flesh, and that he was the extreme revelation of love. This claim right here is the central claim of all of the oldest Christian creeds. 
People sang songs about this before there was even the Bible. So this confession that we make today is rooted in an ancient Christian proclamation. Jesus was and is the one true God. The earliest Christian communities emerged, I don't know if you know this, but the earliest Christian communities actually emerged as a primarily Jewish sect. And as a Jewish sect, their rich tradition was fixed on the belief that there was only one God. And after their experience with the resurrected Christ, they began to speak publicly about Jesus being the one true God. Then later, the, the good news of the rec- as the good news of the resurrection began to spread all over the region, some began to write down these events, and they began to carefully articulate who Jesus was. They wanted to ask that, they wanted to answer that original question, and they did so based on what they experienced and what they saw and what was told to them, and then they would go interview eyewitnesses, and, and then they would write down these events and these stories with meticulous precision. And these stories and these events that have been written down are what we now call the New Testament. And, and in the New Testament, the identity of Jesus, who Jesus Christ is, is described consistent, consistently, and all seem to refer to him as the revelation of God. If you would read the New Testament, you have the four evangelists. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth from their own vantage point. They have different details. And from time to time, the little details seem to conflict with one another. Each of them are unique and nuanced. But you know what? While they they conflict in small details, they are consistent in this. They are consistent in their testimony regarding Jesus' identity. Paul, James, Peter, and Jude, along with the writer that wrote Hebrews and the Revelation, they're all consistent with the four evangelists. They're all consistent with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John in their description of Jesus as the one true God. So when the question was asked, these people would say that Jesus is the revelation of God's love and is the one true God. Now, each of them speaks of Jesus in the same way that a person would describe God. There were titles that they gave to Jesus. Some of them look like this. They said he was the way, the truth, and the life. They said he was the impress, the image, the seal. They called him the Lord, King, he that is. They said about him that he is the Almighty, These are the ways in which you would describe God, not just any old human being, even one with great gifts and charisma. Paul speaks of Jesus as the one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Matthew identifies Jesus as the same Emmanuel God with us that was expected by Isaiah the prophet. John calls him God the one and only James refers to him as the Lord of glory. The author of the Revelation calls him the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the writer of Hebrews views him as God's son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. And the writer even said that he is the son that is the radiance. We could say that he is the revelation of God's glory and the exact representation of his being sustaining everything by his powerful word. 
You've heard these words before in the creation narrative. In the beginning, God created. But not only that, there were these people that they said they saw Jesus perform these actions and operations that they said that only God could do. And he acted in only the way that God could act. He did unbelievable things like he could forgive sins. And he gave life to the dead. And he engendered new life in the spirit. And he himself was raised from the dead. These kind of events, plus, these kinds of events, plus a, a whole host of other events, were all taking place here at the time that people were asking these questions about Jesus in the first century. And, 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 and it caused people to, to, to place upon Jesus, when they were trying to describe him, it caused them to place upon Jesus this title, the title Lord. You've heard that before, right? You've heard that Jesus is Lord but you may not know where that's come from. Well, the Greek is kurios. Kurios is Lord. And in the earliest days, it may have just, when they called Jesus Lord, it just meant maybe that they were just saying teacher or master. But then Christians who saw the evidence of God in Jesus began to embrace this title in a whole new way. In fact, it quickly became to be used interchangeably with a different Greek word, and the word was theos. Or God. People would start calling Jesus Lord, but what they actually meant was Jesus is God. This is the first thing right from the beginning. Kurios started to mean Theos. So as that was going on, uh, soon before that, there were these Jewish scribes that were translating the Old Testament from Hebrew to Greek, and they began to translate the word Yahweh, which is God in Hebrew, with the word Lord. They wanted to be able to, to, to write it so that people could understand it in their own language. And so all of a sudden, Yahweh, God, Theos, Kurios, Lord, all meant the same thing. And the people were saying, Jesus, when they were saying Jesus is Lord, were saying Jesus is God. And they were all agreeing with one another based on what they had seen. It's to him, God, to whom worship is owed. And it is to him, God, that divine attributes apply. And so they started applying them to Jesus of Nazareth. At the same time this was going on, there was a Roman Caesar whose name was Augustus. And he put out a decree and the decree was that everybody was to call him the one true Lord and God of the world. All of this is happening at the same time. And so the earliest Christians began to embrace this idea. They began to embrace the identity of Jesus when they saw his life and his death and his resurrection. And they attributed this very controversial title to him. They started to say wherever they went, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is Theos. Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord. And as you can imagine, it did not make the traditional Jews happy because they believed in one God and they thought that giving the title to anybody but the one God that they had in their minds was idolatry, and it did not make the Romans happy who yielded to the power of Caesar. But those Christians who saw this in Jesus, 
This was their very first confession. Jesus is Lord was the confession of the earliest Pauline tradition. If you would read the books of Paul, he made over 250 references to Jesus being Lord in his letters. We've got some very famous ones. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This comes out of Romans. Or no one can say Jesus is Lord except from the gift of the Holy Spirit. This right here, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the embodiment of God, that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is Theos. This is the foundational doctrine of what it means to be Christian. Jesus is Lord and God and is the revelation of the one true God was, was heralded by the earliest Christian believers and it, they went without much theological controversy or resistance until the 4th century. In the 4th century, there was a priest named Arius, and he was from Alexandria in Egypt. And Arius was influenced by, some, by Gnostic philosophy and some semi-heretical writers. And he made the claim that the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, was not eternal or co-eternal, or co-unoriginate with a father. In other words, he said that the son was created and he was not before his generation. In other words, he said that Arius made the claim that Jesus was not who the disciples said he was or the apostles and the confessing community claimed that he was, but was instead, Arius said, he said that Jesus was beneath God and he said that Jesus was created by God. Now this led to a controversy that, that still lasts in some circles to this day. But there was also another man named Athenaeus that led a theological battle of words against Arius. And he found a way to state what these had been confessing for almost 300 years. He said these words, that Jesus was the very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. I was at a Christian conference several years ago where the key speaker, and I mean, this was a huge event with a lot of people. And the key speaker got on the, big, on the big platform and he was up there because he wrote a lot of books and he has a huge following on Twitter and Instagram. And he put the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds and confessions that the church says, he put it on the screen and essentially said, and I'll paraphrase, friends, the Apostles' Creed is BS. Now, because he was famous, and he was very charismatic, it was all a buzz. I mean, everybody was talking about it in the hallway. And my friend Mark articulated what I was feeling. And he asked this question, what am I going to believe? A famous pastor from Minnesota who says that the Apostles' Creed is BS? Or 2,000 years of church history that is red with blood from the martyrs who gave, gave this up for their lives, gave their lives up for this. The Son of God is not a creature, nor is the Son of God created by the Father. fact of the matter is, is that our church 
confesses when we, stay, when we say this. We confess the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. We believe that this is fair and right interpretation of the scriptures, a fair and a right interpretation of the early church that worshiped Jesus as Lord and God, which you find in Acts 2.36. And this is faithful to the most oldest and the most fundamental creeds that we have. The Nicene Creed says it this way, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten begotten from the Father before all ages. He is God of God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and he was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he will come with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. This creed is attempting to reveal the identity of Jesus, and it gives credence as well to the Holy Scriptures and the witness that those writers bore. It also gives witness to those who have seen and experienced Jesus as God themselves. And we, at the 8th Street Church, hold to this confession that God died in solidarity with us. And we do it because of the scriptures. We do it because of the faith of the martyrs. We do it because of church history and the creeds. And we do it because we believe that this is exactly what we have experienced. The one God in Jesus in our own lives and the truth of the stories of the saints and the martyrs become true for us. So we confess alongside others who have worshipped today, who have worshipped in large cathedrals and also in hiding in caves, that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is Theos, Jesus is Lord. Now that's a lot of heady theological historical stuff, isn't it? You asleep or awake? Um, now there's another weird kind of thing that we say. Uh, we're not just making an argument that Jesus is God. But we say that God died in solidarity with us. God died. And we can look at a number of different passages in Scripture. But for the sake of time, I think we should focus on one passage in Scripture. And it comes from the Gospel of Mark. And in Mark's version of the crucifixion, Jesus prays a prayer. He prays Psalm 22. And it is a gut-wrenching prayer while he is dying on the cross that just takes your breath away. It's called the prayer of dereliction or the prayer of abandonment. And Jesus says, why, why God would you abandon me? It is this prayer that Jesus prays that is chased down by a guttural cry and then, and then there is his death. And it's all consuming. It, it consumes everybody who's around. And Mark says that the world went dark for three days. God's intention for the created order, God's intention for the world is seen in Genesis chapter 2. In everything, went back when everything was good. There was fellowship with God and there was others. People were good neighbors. There was harmony. There was joy. There was freedom. Everyone was satisfied and there was enough. But things went awry. 
And we call this sin. There, there's personal kinds of sin and there's systemic sin. But sin is just generally this. It's, it's that which causes the world to unravel. So the gospel writers tell us that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, the Lord, God himself, willingly went to the cross. And God suffered. And it was a suffering like no other. All evil was poured on him that day. All evil was unleashed. And all that it had at that moment, everything was thrown at him. Individual evil, corporate evil, universal cosmic evil was thrown at him. And when we read these passages in the scripture, we we see a strange scene. It's the one that caused Arius to scratch his hand. And it's one that causes others to, to prove that Jesus wasn't the same as God because Jesus would pray a prayer like this. Because when Jesus prayed his prayer, there's this, there's this mass confusion that happens in the scene there in the end of Gospel of Mark, and you can read it. They start asking all kinds of questions. They try to satisfy all that's happening. One of them said, perhaps he's calling down Elijah. People are just throwing out silly things because that's an indication that we are always trying to rationalize things that cannot be rationalized. And the death of Jesus is just a real head-scratcher. In fact, it doesn't sit well with us, not because Jesus is just an innocent man committed to death. We have heard about innocent people being committed to death on the news in the evening before. And while it grieves us, somehow still we're able to go back to eating dinner within just a few minutes. Just the fact that somebody dies who is innocent doesn't bother us. But for some reason, this does. Because it's different. And it... It's unnerving because when Jesus cries out, when the son cries out, he cries out to the father. And in Mark, there seems to be no response. Now, some have tried to explain what's happening here. Some Gnostic writers or some philosophers of the first century, well, they tried to grapple with this strange prayer. They said, well, maybe Jesus just had the personality of God. But he wasn't really God. Some said maybe Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, they were independent beings of God, but they weren't really God. Maybe, and then some said, well, maybe the reason that Jesus prayed this prayer is because Jesus, Jesus may have been God, but only had the appearance of uh, of a human. And then Jesus, when when, and then God, when Jesus was on the cross, he left Jesus as he suffered there on the cross. So others said, well, maybe Jesus was a human, but he just had the charismatic gifts of God. Others said, well, maybe Jesus was, was a born human, but then later on he was adopted by God in his baptism. And then others even said, maybe Jesus, along with the Holy Spirit, are these partial components of God. Each member is a part of God. Now, each of these suggestions was considered heresy, and it was settled in the fourth century during the Arian Controversy because it doesn't act consistent with the confessions of the Holy Scriptures or the apostles or the experience of the believers, even when they're tough passages like this one, when Jesus cries out, why, Father, have you abandoned me? Still, we ask questions like this today. Others have said, well, I guess, Jesus said it this way, because I guess since we're sinners, God had to abandon Jesus to punish him for our sins. 
People will say, Jesus took the brunt of what we actually deserved. And if we're going to enter into the kingdom of God someday, well, somebody had to take the punishment. I guess Jesus just pays the ticket we need in order to get to heaven. Now we don't have to suffer because Jesus did it for us. But I think that's nonsense. I'll tell you the truth. I I think and other scholars think that that's actually a pretty narcissistic and self-centered way to go looking about this, looking at this world-changing event. I'm not sure that cosmic evil was poured on, on Jesus to just make things easier for us. Like, it's good news for us, bad news for Jesus, and it just doesn't sit right because it's not that just. God killing an innocent man. I think it's important for us to look at this like the gospel writers do. The cross for the gospel writers is not some sort of satisfaction whereby God is mad at us and he has to take his anger out on Jesus. I think we should look at it like this. The cross is some sort of strange and scandalous victory. We have the cross here in our sanctuary. Every time, I, every time you see it, I want you to see it as some sort of strange and scandalous victory. Throughout all the Gospels, each one of the writers is clear. Jesus declared that the kingdom of God is upon us. Now, the gospel writers spent very little time talking about heaven. They did it a little bit, but very little time. They spent a little, just a very little time talking about the afterlife. But the gospel writers spent a huge amount of time talking about Jesus' message that the kingdom of God is here, and it is now. And even the way that he taught his disciples to pray insists, he said, pray that the kingdom would be established now here on earth. And he prepared people. He gave them signs of what the kingdom would look like. He said it would look like a mustard seed or a farmer's coin or somebody who sells something for a pearl of great prize. Or it would look like a blind person who's able to see. But his greatest sign was this. The kingdom of God looked like a God who was willing to suffer. Which is really good news if you are a sufferer. That's just remarkable. Somebody asked me this week, We say these words, but can God suffer? Some people don't believe that God has the ability to suffer because if there is one thing that God cannot do, it must be to embrace pain. But even the earliest Jewish writings described God in a unique way. They spent an enormous amount of time talking about the pathos of God. In other words, they spent a lot of time writing and communicating that we serve a God that can feel which is good because Israel's story is one of suffering. And our story is one of suffering. Israel's story had been one of a suffering people. The Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read, is the story of that suffering journey. It it seems as if the cosmos has done everything it can throughout history to sling evil at them. They suffered. And so when we look at this cross, it is scandalous. When we look at this cross, it is a strange thing. When we look at this cross, we see that it is a strange and scandalous victory because upon it is a God who suffers. Can you you see what's happening after all this heavy stuff I've presented you? Can you see what is taking place? 
on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Lord and has been the Lord, now becomes the Lord for the whole world to see. We could call this horrifyingly awful event an inauguration. Two years ago, there was a lot of talk about the inauguration of President Donald Trump. I don't know if you remember that. It was in the news a time or two. There was controversy that surrounded that whole thing, which shouldn't surprise us, because controversies always surround inaugurations. Who will be there? Who's going to sing? What bands will play? What famous celebrities are going to be there? How many will show? But President Trump wanted to have military vehicles drive down the streets in Washington, D.C. as a display of patriotism and power. And now before you Democrats get offended or you Republicans get defensive, I just want to remind us that this is how all inaugurations work. These are the elements of all inaugurations, even Jesus. This is how Pilate came to town. Flags and banners and military salutes, security teams, chariots, bands and horses. Because inaugurations mean victory. And even Jesus' inauguration, which happened on the cross, means victory. The whole scene is strange. It's scandalous even. And Jesus' cry is a strange, new, victorious cry. In the Gospels, you see... All the same elements of inauguration here in the event of Jesus' crucifixion. But everything, this time, is backwards. He rides into town on a, donk- on a donkey. It does not, he does not come in a, on a horse like Pilate would ride or a bulletproof armored car like our president rides in. People cheer for him, but instead of celebrating, do you know what they do? They throw his words back at him and they throw them at him like rocks. There's a purple robe that he wears that the executioner's place on him. There's a crown. It's of thorns. He's given a title, king of the Jews, and he takes his place on a new throne. Only this time it's a cross. And finally, as the Lord, as the king, as Yahweh, as Theos, he makes his inaugural speech, and it goes like this. It's the one that sufferers have been singing for generations. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And with that, Jesus the Christ embraces his identity, his vocation, and his responsibility that was already his. He is the crucified God who reveals himself through suffering on the cross. And his first order of business is to identify with every single sufferer who has ever felt the sheer terror of abandonment. This is what he's doing on the cross. On the cross, God becomes a companion to those of you who are suffering. This week, I watched Stephen Colbert in his interview with, uh, with Anderson Cooper of CNN, and he talked about suffering. Colbert lost his father and brothers uh, in a plane crash when he was 10 years old. And he said this about suffering. Colbert is a Roman Catholic. He said, in my tradition, that is the greatest gift of the sacrifice of Christ. And it is that God does it too, that God suffers with us. And then he said to Anderson Cooper, who just lost his mother, I have found that when we suffer, we really are not alone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died in the Flossenburg concentration camp, in his letters and pages from prison said, only the suffering God can help in these moments. In his book, The Crucified God, theologian Jürgen Moltmann said, I believe in the company of people under the cross. 
beneath the cross, the boundaries of domination and cultures collapse. The Apostles' Creed, BS, I'm sticking with the people who have found refuge under the shadow of the cross. We say it every single week. The truth is this, that God, Jesus, Theos, Yahweh, Jesus is Lord, that God died in solidarity with us and he did it so those of us who have suffered, and if you are human, you understand suffering. Those of us who have suffered are never alone. And because of, the world, uh, because of this, now the world has to face, face the fact that it is radically out of joint. It is unraveled. And within the old reality, through this event that we call the crucifixion of the Christ, a new world can emerge and God's reality is here and a new establishment is made and it's called real love. The kingdom of God is here because Jesus is Lord. You wouldn't think it, but the cross is the place of suffering that, that actually draws the world into God's victory because it reveals to the world who God truly is. The God on the cross is the one who is reconciling the world back to, the God, back to God. The God on the cross is claiming the world as God's once again and is establishing his authority as the rightful ruler of the world, not by winning a victory over suffering, but winning the victory by going through suffering. Barbara Brown Taylor, my, one of my favorite writers, says, in his suffering, he becomes the comfort of those who have no comfort. In his abandonment, he is the God of those who have no God. In his pain, he becomes the king of the kingdom that is backwards. Hearing no voice of love, he cries out, making a sound that for many became the voice of love. These words that Jesus yells out on the cross is more than a mere song. It's more than a psalm. This is more than a ticket to heaven. This is more than some kind of mediation. This is an act of identification. He is identifying with us. He is identifying with every sufferer as a way to, to reconcile the whole world back to God. God becomes a participant in the old world of suffering so that, so that it and we that are in it might be made new. We might be saved. The church father, Irenaeus, said it this way, he became what we are so that he might bring us back to what he is. And if you read the gospel of Mark, you'll find that the first one who declares this new reality is not his disciples or those who had been miraculously healed or those who walked with Jesus but the one who confesses who Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark was the executioner. He says, surely he was the Son of God. And the abandonment is understood by those who have been abandoned. And now there's the 8th Street Church. A tiny little band of people. A group of people that know they can see it. And they've experienced it. And they confess it. And, and then this little church now enters into strange places. They, they go into places and live among people with this confession in their mouth that God died in solidarity with you. Wherever you go, you take this message. You get to say to the sufferers around you, to the lonely and the broken and the abandoned, 
you are not alone. We, the H Street Church, go into neighborhoods and we work with sufferers and we visit them in their homes and in their hospital rooms and we make meals and we help them with their homework and we pick up their pain as we tell them the good news. Jesus is Lord. And then, and then the people there who are in the sh- suffering can also shout at the top of their lungs, the ones who have shouted, my God, I have been in- abandoned. And instead of hearing silence, they hear us and they see us. And for them, we point to the God on the cross and we say together, yeah, for you and for me, God did that. This is a story that we tell every single time we come to the communion table. It is in the cross. It is in the elements like, uh, like bread and wine that we participate in this good story by which God actually meets the abandoned by suffering with the abandoned. We receive communion every week because it's a, it's a physical symbol of the story that Mark and the other gospel writers tell us. It's a story by which Jesus, who is Lord and God, his very body is broken, his blood is poured out. And it's at this table that God brings us in close and the elements tell the story of God's suffering. And Jesus invites people to this table and he invites sufferers to this table. He invites those who feel abandoned to this table. He invites those who've been trapped by an old world to his dinner table and he does it to show us something new. And this comes in his suffering. This is not fancy. There were no servants at Jesus' table. There were no power brokers. There were simply elements here for sustaining life, bread and wine. And so this is why he, at dinner, took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he reminded us what, ha- what was about to happen on the cross. He said, this is my body and it is broken for you, and whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then in the same way, after supper, he held up the cup, and he said, this cup represents the new covenant, the new promise, the new world order that I'm ushering in. This cup represents that you are not abandoned any longer, and when you drink of it, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. Friends, this is not a Nazarene table. This is Jesus's table. And Jesus sits and eats at this table, and he invites you to sit and eat at this table as well. The Lord invites you to this table. God invites you to this table. And is open to you by the one who rules the world and in a scandalous way has victory over it. And he invites you to table fellowship to all, to, he invites you to fa- table fellowship to all those around you who are suffering along with you. So this is an invitation to those who are open to yield themselves to the surprising and astonishing and scandalous work that God in Christ wants to do in all of us and that he began on the cross. We want no barriers, so our bread is gluten-free, our wine is non-alcoholic. I just ask that you leave your uh, your row and come down the left aisle with your hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. We do not take communion here. We receive it because it is a gift. So if for any reason you're unable to come down our aisle, just wave at Justin and he'd love to bring the elements to you. But friends, this is a story and it is a gift offered to you.
So I invite you, as you come and receive this gift, know that God died in solidarity with you. Amen. You may come when you are ready.